Podcast. Hey everybody, Steve Witt here. So glad to be here today. A beautiful day outside and hopefully it's going well where you are. Anyway, welcome you to the Steve Witt Podcast. Today I want to talk about something a little bit different. I've been on this food thing. Now, not only food, as we understand you need to eat food to for nutrition and growth and all that and just sustainment of life, of course, but is there a supernatural component to it? What is the supernatural component to food? It's interesting. In the Jewish culture, of course, it was laid out way back in, in Leviticus, uh, mid parts of Leviticus, these feasts, the seven feasts, four and three, and they were very important. Three of them you had to travel to Jerusalem for. And so Jews in ancient times, in the times of Christ, several times a year, they would make the trek down to Jerusalem. And, you know, they were on their way to a party. You got to understand that the, the, the Jewish culture in that time in the first century, although they were under the overlords of the Romans and they didn't have a much, much more friendlier Jewish government, a subset, uh, the Romans allowed it to occur there in the Judea area, but things were tough for them. But they made out a, uh, a, a life there. I mean, they learned how to enjoy simple things. And one of them was to go to Jerusalem and see the temple. That was, I don't know, any equivalent that we'd have to it today. Maybe a trip to Washington, D.C. might be a number one on a one to ten as far as ten being the temple. But it's not just a building. It's not just a place. It's your history. It's your family. It's your belief system. It is God. You are going to visit God. So on the way down there, you'd be very happy. Well, they had these seven Jewish Feast, which I'll talk about in just a minute, but let me just read real quickly out of Acts 2, because the church itself was born in a party. I don't know what you think happened in Acts chapter 2. The 10 days they were sitting around in fulfillment of the prophecy of Jesus Christ, tarry in Jerusalem until you be endued with power, you know. You know, you'll be in Jerusalem and, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost. So, so he laid it out. He laid out a framework, but I'm not sure that they connected with what was happening, but they were coming up to the feast of Pentecost. So there's, there's a celebration atmosphere. And we know on the feast day, when Pentecost had fully come, they were going to celebrate. So they're in celebration mode. Their Jewish DNA was tuned into this moment. They've been going through it for many years. Most of these disciples were 20s and 30-year-olds, kind of a deal. They, they've had, they're experienced in Jewish custom. They understand what's coming. They understand this is a party. And when Jesus said they'd be endued in power, I wonder sometimes, did they know that it was going to be Pentecost Sunday? Did they know that it would be that Pentecost day that the power would come and they would be filled with the Holy Spirit. I think they didn't. I mean, I've read so many times in, a, in the Bible where, particularly in the Gospels, where the disciples, they, uh, they knew not what he was talking about. I mean, they never knew. It's something like 29 times in the Gospels. It says, and they knew not what he said. They did not understand what he said. What manner of saying is this? I mean, back and forth. It's like behind the scenes, they're like, John, do you understand what he's saying? No, I don't know. I don't know. Jesus uh, was cryptic and parabolic in the way he communicated. And it didn't always sink in until later on and be like, ah, I mean, their eyes would be open. It's interesting. It took food 
After Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, he's on the road to Emmaus, and for some reason, a couple of disciples, not his initial disciples, but others, that knew about him were mourning over the death of Jesus, not knowing they are walking with Jesus Christ on the road. So they get a discussion going with him. They're fascinated. He knows nothing about this. And Jesus starts to speak about himself throughout Scripture, through the prophets and and historical books, he's telling them, they're probably like, wow, this guy is an amazing Jewish scholar, you know. And sure enough, they come to a turn of the road or whatever happened, they get invited. He gets invited into a house of a friend. They go in there, and of course, the host got to break the bread to open up for the meal they were going to have. And Jesus takes the bread in a very ceremonial way, the way any Jews would have when they were asked by the host to break the bread. They pass that bread around. It might have been challah bread. They pass it around. They might dip it in some salt or something. They'd eat it together, and it gets their appetite going, you know. But Jesus breaks the bread, and food has a supernatural quality in this moment. It opens the eyes of those two guys on the road, and they're like, whoa, wait a minute. This is Jesus. And boom, as soon as they thought that, said that, anything came into their being, Jesus, boom, he disappears. How freaky is that? They turn to one another in exasperation, like, did not our hearts burn on the way? Yeah, of course. Why not? Of course, that was Jesus. That's why he knew all about himself in the Old Testament, my great, in the Torah. He knew the Torah like, like nobody else I've ever met. And so they were encountering these kinds of things. But on the day of Pentecost, it's culminated. And sure enough, the power of God comes on a Jewish holiday. Now, this is an interesting, and this, it's somewhat sacred, really, to talk about, but let's go to the Agape Feast. In Acts chapter 2, in the new church that was formed out of that day of Pentecost, an amazing, partying, food-oriented church emerged, and it talks about them. It says this in verse 40, and with many other words, uh, Peter testified. Verse 41, they gladly received the word. They were baptized. 3,000 souls were added to them, verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and the fellowship, which is our word koinonia, uh, holding something in common. Two, 20 times in the New Testament, it appears. In the breaking of bread, so fellowship, breaking of bread, and of prayers, these are the four cornerstones of the early church, fear came upon every soul. Many signs and wonders were done by the apostles, and they were believed. Those who believed were together, had all things in common. They sold their possessions and goods, divided them among all and anyone in need. Verse 46 is really, really gets interesting. And continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread. So breaking bread daily from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. I got to let you know, this word gladness is not a normal gladness word. I mean, you think gladness is like, oh, hey, I've got this bread here and I'm very excited about this. You want a piece of my bread? Dip it in the salt. Let's eat together. It wasn't like that. Actually, the Greek word for gladness here is wild joy, ecstatic delight. They are partying. Why not? God is a party God. I mean, he is a party God. He loves food. He loves, I mean, run out of wine. It's okay. Jesus is here. Get some water, bring it in. He's going to turn it into wine. 
Are you a little hungry and there's no fast food around? That's okay. Let's just find a young boy with a couple fish and some bread and we'll make it happen, man, because Jesus is here. I love the stories of Jesus involving food. Peter getting out of the boat, finding that it's Jesus. They just caught a big catch of fish. He takes off his boat. This is resurrection time after Jesus is resurrected. He swims to the shore. He comes there. Jesus had made him food, fish on the beach on a little fire. He starts talking intimately with Peter, knowing that Peter has shame that has come upon his life because he's denied Jesus three times. But food, once again, becomes the glue. Food's the glue. Food's the glue for community. Food's the glue for relationship. Food's the glue for restoration of broken relationships. Food's the glue for all kinds of things through Scripture. As you begin to study it and you get interested in it like I am, I see it everywhere. So in the New Testament, for up to 200 years, they had these things called agape feasts. They actually called them, kind of the slang term was agapes. Let's come over for an agape. An agape, which means love, actually inferred a lunch together, a dinner together, a snack together of some sort. We are going to break bread together. Jesus' time, they were typically used to these kinds of foods. Of course, fish, when they could get it, and Jesus got it because he was near the Sea of Galilee. Lamb, which little less they might get, but they would they would definitely eat that. So they ate some meat. They also had an array of fresh and dried figs. Apricots, dates, nuts, marinated olives. Uh, some say hummus was possibly a version of hummus was used. Whole crusty breads, pita unleavened bread, olive oil, cheeses, grape leaves, and other simple finger foods. This diet that they lived on uh, was sustenance and strength to them. And when the eight of them, uh, they sensed and felt a thankfulness to the God who supplied all they had. It's interesting that the Lord chooses seven feasts to mark Israel for the rest of their lives. We know the Jewish understand the Jewish faith started with Father Abraham. Father Abraham cut a covenant with God and an unusual relationship with God because of his great love and respect for Abraham and that he cut that covenant. He respected Isaac and Jacob after him. And ultimately in Romans, anyone who aligned themselves with Jesus Christ were sons and daughters of Abraham. It infers in the book of Romans that even non-Jews are Jews if you believe in Jesus. And what God did was he laid down these seven Feast, and they're really interesting. You know, you have Passover, of course, it's the first feast uh, that comes out in the springtime. Uh, you have Rosh Hashanah in the fall, which is the new year. But in the springtime, you have Passover, which is which speaks of, of course, when Israel was in Egypt, desiring to be delivered from Egypt. The angel of death came over them. If they put blood over the doorpost of their house, the angel of death would pass over. Jesus then, more than a thousand years later, comes as the Passover lamb. And get this, Jesus is sacrificed on Passover. Is that a coincidence? That on the holiday that they're celebrating, the the deliverance, the final test that brought deliverance to Israel out of the bondage, bondage of Egypt, out of what we call and what the New Testament calls 
out of darkness into light, out of bondage into freedom. That's what Egypt represented was bondage, was darkness, was separation, was was control, lack of freedom. When they came out of that, they're going toward the promised land. And so they move out of there with Passover. There's the the unleavened bread. All this was delivered on Mount Sinai, on actually on Pentecost, uh, when they celebrated Pentecost. That's when it was all laid out that these are the feasts that they're to do. It was the remembrance. Pentecost is a remembrance of the law giving on Mount Sinai. So you got Passover, you got unleavened bread. Jesus was in the ground during unleavened bread. First fruits is when he raised from the dead. So think of this. Three of the key holidays were key demarcation points in Jesus' life. Then he prophesied about uh, the Feast of Weeks that would come. He prophesied about uh, an amazing harvest that would come, that the Holy Spirit would come upon them, and lo and behold, it happened on Pentecost. And those are the four spring feasts. So Jesus is directly associated with the four spring feast, the the dinners that they had, the celebrations that they had, and also in the in the four uh, the bottom three in the uh, fall time. That in fall, each one of these are related to the Messiah that came. It's interesting how Jesus naturally just fits into the Jewish framework of celebration of the history and times of the Jewish people. On those feasts, they would eat. On those feasts, they would eat and they would remember the history. Do you know what this does? When you lay out food in front of you, food becomes a supernatural memory. When you eat food on a certain time, that's why some people can remember their first date and what they ate or their or when they got married at the reception, even years later, 44 years later, we can remember what we had at our reception. Why? Because it marked a day. It was not just about seeing and hearing. It was about tasting, feeling, smelling. See, all the senses came in to electrify and animate your very soul and your very memory that God has marked this moment. And Jews had that repeated year after year in their life. Jesus, at the age of 30, would have gone to Jerusalem a minimum of 99 times in his life at age 30. Well, three times a year at age 33 would be 99. So he would go to Jerusalem. On the way, he would sing many of the same songs. He would see many of the same people. They rejoice because they're heading to the greatest party, one of the greatest parties of the year. As some scholars that I read said, as we, uh, as non-Jews live in a very linear kind of understanding, we mark our time. We can easily get stopped. Some boulder gets in front of us. Some mountain gets in front of us. But in the Jewish understanding, it wasn't a linear line. It wasn't just a line. It wasn't something that could be interrupted easily. But it was a building of an understanding of their history. It was a helix, actually. You know what a helix is? It's like an updraft. It's like a corkscrew. Circles upward. It goes from stage to stage, on and on. It's funny, last week, my wife was in shopping. And when she goes in shopping, it can last a long time, especially if it's TJ Maxx or Home Goods or something like that. And she's in there, and I'm laying in my car, and I just, I, I, it was a nice warm day. I fell asleep. And in the moment I fell asleep, I saw instantly, I saw this, what I now know is a helix, but this turning, revolving of doves ascending into heaven. And I woke up knowing that, that this was a God dream. 
It was the next day I was studying the Jewish feasts and I saw the word helix shoes and I thought, helix, helix, what is that? I remember that from math or science or something. I look it up and Wikipedia shows it. Sure enough, it's this same thing that I saw in my dream with the doves was actually the Jewish holidays working their way up in someone's life. And when they complete it, boom, they move into the new year, Rosh Hashanah, and they start the process over again. And so Jews have this rhythmic cycle of life that is celebrated in the feast and it's represented in the food and they taste and smell. When they smell an olive in the field, they think of certain things. When they smell the fresh bread, they think of certain things. When they see a fig on the tree, they think of different things. I love it. Even now, as you know, my wife and I, Cindy and I are big uh, Tiophiles, we we love Italy. We uh, we go there often. We we study it. We watch YouTube's about it. I mean, we just we love everything about it. It's it's a place where heaven kisses earth. And if you've heard my podcast, you know I talk about it sometimes. And you know it's amazing here in America. I'll, I'll go into a, a fruit market or something when I smell certain scents. You know, whether it's basil or whatever it might be, or rosemary or something, I'm taken back to a spot in Italy. I mean, my wife and I will turn to one and I'll go, oh, what does this smell like? And I will go, Capri. Yes, it smells like Capri. You know, or we'll go, wait, 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 what, what, what is that? What does that remind you of? That reminds me of Sorrento. It reminds me of uh, a Pienza. It reminds me of Florence. I mean, all these various, I mean, we are, we are so boring to be around. It's like all we talk about. Uh, fortunately, God made us for one another and we can talk one another's ear off about it. But anyway, it was not, not unlike that in the Jewish culture. These feasts were demarcation points that helped them go deeper and deeper, or should I say higher and higher in the Lord. It's no wonder the New Testament calls about, uh, talks about our upward call in God. Remembering, not forgetting those things which are, forgetting those things which are behind that are bad, but reaching forth into our upward, upward call in Christ Jesus. Hmm. Fascinating. That God laid out a framework for the Jews to remember their history, to celebrate their history, to thank God for what happened, that they were passed over, they were spared, they were delivered out of Israel, they were taken care of in the wilderness, they eventually got to the promised land. And funny, the, the lure, the carrot that God put in front of them wasn't a carrot at all. It was a land filled, flowing with milk and honey. And they talked to one another about it. Oh, the land we go to. And then, of course, the spies went in there and they came back with grapes on a stick taken with several men having to carry them. Some rumor that the grapes may have been as large as basketballs. I don't know if that's true. That'd be pretty hard to eat that grape, but... They were magnificent. They were huge. They were bigger than anything you'd ever seen. And they were ready to enter in, but we know what happened. They, they saw themselves as grasshoppers in, in uh, the enemy's eyes. Therefore, they were grasshoppers in their own eyes. They, they flinched. They pivoted, stayed back. They couldn't get in the Holy Land, but their children did. So the children received the promise, carrying on that helix again, moving in Rosh Hashanah right up the spiral into the ultimate thanksgivings of the, of the tabernacle, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, where we remember that God cared for us 
In the times of the wilderness, we put up tents to remember that God gave us the manna. God gave us the quail. God gave us all the things, the water out of the of the rock. So why is all this important? Food brought ritual alive. Do you have a rhythm of remembrance in your family or in your life? Cindy and I joke all the time, you know, about about things way back because in the 70s, in the 1970s, uh, you know, we had cameras, we had film, of course, but it was the old film where you put it in a camera, you pull the tab out at the end, you hook it up on the camera. It's a long story. You shut the camera and you hope that you didn't expose it too much. You take pictures knowing that probably about a third of them are going to turn out really, you know, and that now, now they have Instagram has that 70s filter on it, you know, that actually looks the way they did. It was, they were kind of grainy. They weren't real, they were just different. Let's say they were different. Well, because of that, we don't have a lot of, a lot of pictures of our dating time when in the mid seventies, I couldn't afford that, man. It's cost money for the film. It cost like a dollar a picture by the time you get them all back. And some of them weren't even, you know, processed properly. And it was, it was terrible. So you get three, four pictures back and you put them in an album somewhere and they'd fade over the years. So you know, we look at the album and it's like, it's almost surreal. Like, wow, that's me. <laughs> that's you, me and you, you and me. <laughs> so happy together. Anyway, so where they are, we're together, you know, And but it, it's like, it, it really happened. I mean, now, you know, kids, of course, growing up now are going to have like 10,000 pictures of when they were three years old, you know. I mean, it's just such a history. I pray to God it doesn't get zapped someday and we lose them all without printing them out. But we don't have enough, we don't have enough printed out. So Cindy and I have to remember. <laughs> you remember. We'll spell something. Go, you, oh, that reminds me. Remember back in 1979. Remember 1984 when we first moved to Canada from the United States. You remember that sense and that smell that was there? Something that brings back the memory. I'm telling you, God uses food to demarcate your life in different places. He wants you to remember who he is as you eat. May he reveal, the Bible says in Romans 1, that creation reveals the divine attributes of God. Food is part of that creation. He gave us food to sustain us, but not just sustain us. He gave us food to create beauty. I'll tell you, if you ever want to watch some beautiful food shows, there's a lot of them on the table I've watched before. And also uh, Stanley Tucci in Italy, uh, it's it's emotional to watch the power of food. I heard one famous chef say when they smelled certain herbs, it would, it would arouse the emotions of their soul. And so there's something about food that it's not just to fill me up real quick like a bag of Doritos, but God's called food to be a picture of demonstrating his kind love in our lives. What's our challenge in our local churches? How do we handle this in our home? Let me talk about our home a minute. You know what? Go home and eat something. This past Sunday, I kind of taught and preached on this. If you want to see it on video, you can go to BethelCleveland.com. It was this past Sunday in uh, first uh, or the uh, third Sunday of uh, October. And uh, I actually handed out what, what would be a charcuterie in a cup to everyone at church. So everyone had this little cup with some grapes in it, uh, dates. Uh, bread, a little piece of bread, some cheeses, olives, you know, a little charcuterie, Italian charcuterie, which is very close to the the actual food that Jesus ate growing up in the first century. So 
I started looking at it one day, you know, I was preparing this message and I actually got interpretations, prophetic, understand. I know this sounds weird. Some of you hear it go, that's just stupid. Well, that's fine if you want to think that, but God supernaturally moved through it on that Sunday. As we went through and talked about grapes and being part of a cluster and being part of the vine, as we talked about the cheese, which is part of the milk flowing, uh, land flowing with milk and honey, we talked about the olives and the anointing, the squeezing, the anointing oil, the power of God. I went through it. People were weeping in the place because they realized food was much deeper and much more significant than what they understood. Food can heal. Food can heal your body. I'm telling you, food taken with friends can heal your soul. You get together even in the presence of your enemy. The Lord prepares a table. Can you imagine that? I'm telling you, food is powerful. So go home, eat something, take communion together with your wife or kids, keep it simple, have fun. And remember that an agape feast is the thing that the Holy Spirit came and filled up on Pentecost. So in your family, if you want God to move among your family, invite him into your supper. Invite him into your meal. Take a minute. I know kids don't like this initially. They're bored. They're tired. They're hungry. Whatever. Tell them to put all their devices down. Pick up the bread and together lead them. Lead them in Holy Spirit supernatural eating and see what God does. That's why I love on the road to Emmaus, what I mentioned earlier, sometimes a bite of a bread, a breaking of the bread will open eyes and you'll see something like you never saw before. It's what they did in the early church. It was sacred to them. They ate food. My prayer for you right now is that you would be bound together by the food, not only your cellular level physically, but your soul would be healed in eating. Set aside time sometime to, to eat with somebody. In fact, uh, I found out that feasting in the presence of your enemies is one of the best ways to bring resolution. Many times there's people who have had aught against me, and I'll say, let's get a coffee together. And I'll invite them in. Hey, you want to share a bagel? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, you know what I'm doing. I'm, I'm, I'm being Jehovah sneaky here. I mean, Jehovah, God Jehovah is so powerful he will use food. Why do you think he used the body and blood, bread and wine to help you remember every time you smell wine, you smell the bread, you think of Jesus, you think of communion, you think of the Eucharist. That is not by accident. It is by design. The Lord Jesus Christ wants you to awaken and see what you're eating. By the way, you are the temple of the Lord. A little off topic here, but maybe it's time to clean the temple. It's time to get into clean eating. It's time to eat things that are more honorable. Be prophetic in your eating and declare your future over the health that you eat and the things that you eat now. Clean up your life, holiness. Clean up your very soul, emotional stability. Clean up your physical body, longevity, health, enhancement. Until the next time, as you're eating your food, think of this topic. I'm believing that God's going to move in your life in a very powerful way in the next meal you have if you just put your eyes upon Jesus and say, Jesus, thank you for this food. Speak to me through this moment of communion with you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. See you next time.